Good evening and welcome. You're listening to Canberra's People Powered Radio, 2XX FM 98.3. The program is Subject ACT and I'm Sophie Singh. On Subject ACT, we bring you stories connected to our local Canberra community and beyond from an informed and curious perspective, current and community affairs with a global dimension. Over the next three weeks, we'll be bringing you a best of series. And tonight, we're exploring the world of bioarchaeology of care with Dr. Lorna Tilly, formerly a visiting fellow at the School of Anthropology and Archaeology at the ANU, has forged a new pathway meshing archaeological and anthropological disciplines. And it's really lovely to speak to you, and thank you very much for coming on to Subject ACT. And thank you for having me, Sophie. Let's start with the fundamentals. What is bioarchaeology and how does it relate to archaeology on the one hand and anthropology on the other? Okay, the brief answer to that question, I will preface by saying that you've probably given me rather more credit than I deserve because bioarchaeology is an established discipline and what it does is... In shorthand, it analyzes human remains within their archaeological context. So as you say, it is a meshing of archaeology and anthropology. What I have done is develop a subdiscipline, if you like, within bioarchaeology, which I call the bioarchaeology of care. But yes, bioarchaeology is a relatively new field, and I think we can trace its beginnings back to 1972 and the work by Dr. Jane Bikestra, a wonderful woman in America. So talking about the bioarchaeology of care, what do you define as caregiving and what's the relationship between caregiving and what you regard as compassion? Are they the same or are they differentiated? Look, I think that caregiving and compassion, to answer that question first, are obviously very closely related because compassion, which is really a motivation and has to be understood as a motivation, is the desire to alleviate the suffering of another person. Caregiving is that action, is that behavior of doing this. In this instance, and I'm only looking at health-related caregiving, it is that care, that support, that accommodation that's provided to somebody who temporarily or longer term, is incapacitated by illness or disease. Illness, disease or injury, I should say. 1972 is still quite recent uh, in terms of the field of archaeology and anthropology. Why do you think those two disciplines, which have much greater longevity, hadn't previously considered the biological context of humans within that archaeological surrounding or environment? And even more, to add to that, why do you think the caring aspect was not part of the perspective of bioarchaeology when it did emerge? Whoa, that's a gigantic question, and I think you're going to get a two-hour lecture in response to that. But why were the fields of, if you like, biological anthropology on the one hand and archaeology, which is the looking at behaviour, gleaning behaviour from the past, from the evidence provided by the material culture, why were they so separate? The answer is, I suppose the answer lies in the way the disciplines were established, the fact that biological anthropologists were very focused on bodies and bones when looked at bodies in the past context, and archaeologists very much on what can be measured, what can be quantified, what can be picked up, what people have created, but not the remains of the people themselves, what was failed to to be acknowledged was that the human body actually reflects the actions of people during their lives, reflects their experiences, reflects where they lived, reflects their illnesses, their diseases, reflects the violence that might have been perpetrated on them, reflects the care. So we can actually look at bodies as material culture. And that nicely combines those fields of 
biological anthropology and archaeology. What I do have to say is that despite the work done, magnificent work in, done in bioarchaeology, there's still a divide between practitioners that's very obvious when you go out into excavation sites, into the field, where you have your traditional archaeologists still very passionate about that pot that they have dug up. And really, you know, bones will just lift them up and put them away. On the other hand, you have the biological anthropologists who are, oh, get that pot out of my grave. And the focus is totally on the bones. Now, because I came into archaeology, bioarchaeology very late in life as a sort of third career, I think I found it a bit easier to combine the two. Now, bioarchaeology of care, why has care not been really looked at at all in the past, or at least before the past five years, I suppose, when work in this area began? And why in some cases was the idea that you could identify care in the past just dismissed with varying levels of anger, disdain, or just, you know, casual, well, of course, we'll never get to know this. My own private feeling is that I think it's cultural. I think we're a society that is so used to reading about violence and war and death and responding to these behaviours that we overlook something which is far more widespread, and that's the way that we actually care for each other. And you just only have to think of your own experience. You know, how many people in your family, your friends, have you provided care for? And how many people have cared for you when at some stage in your life you've actually been incapacitated, you've been laid low by disease? So that hostility or dismissiveness to the notion that care is something that we can see as a constant throughout prehistoric and from a prehistoric point all the way through, do you think it actually gives a lesser value or places a lesser value on caregiving than other apparent traits like, like you say, violence or territoriality? Look, I think, as I said before, that yes, it is, it's a cultural thing. It's a reflection of our cultural priorities, perhaps at the moment, that we find it very difficult to acknowledge that care was likely given in the past. It's not given a whole lot of economic value within a Western society. Now, it's very interesting that I've worked with colleagues in Vietnam and in Peru. And in both these cases, there has been no difficulty at all in talking to people or talking to fellow archaeologists about the notion of care. There's been an acceptance. Well, of course there was care. What else would people do? So I suppose that in these circumstances, my colleagues have often been people who have come from different cultures, obviously, that goes without saying, but from poorer backgrounds, from backgrounds in which, or from a culture in which it's far more accepted that there is a one-to-one relationship. You care for people in your family, you care for people in your community, because really there isn't that wealth to ensure that the outsourcing of care is possible. And I think perhaps that's why culturally we, you know, on the Western side, of the discipline has been this reluctance to look at the possibility of identifying care in the past. In practice, the bioarchaeology of care involves the the study of of human remains Mm -hmm. to discover that evidence of caregiving. Given that the remains that you're looking at are thousands of years old, so presumably only skeletal remains survive, how do you read the bones? So how do bones tell a story of care? And what sort of evidence can bones reveal that the care has been given or received? And I was I'm hoping that maybe you could 
talk about Man Back Burial 9 to, to illustrate that sort of evidence. Okay, you're right. You've put your, <laughs> your finger on the difficulty, of course. We are looking at evidence in human remains and, of course, in their context. As I said before, bones do make up the vast majority of human remains that we examine. There are mummies, and I've recently been involved in looking at care in mummified or preserved soft tissue remains, but I'll stick to bones for the sake of simplicity. In human bones, you can often find, and it is fairly often, you can find evidence of disease. Now, that disease might range from something relatively minor, which we all experience or most of us experience as we grow older, and that is, say, evidence for fractures, broken bones that we may have had in the past that we've had tended to that have mended arthritis, which you know, from the age of about 30 onwards, actually, we're developing. So we can also see in bones in the past evidence that a person experienced a disease or an injury that was pretty serious and that all things being equal, they lived with that disease or injury, whatever, that pathology. And in order to have lived with that pathology, they would have required a level of care in order to survive within their community, to get along within their community, which is not to say that they might have died without, you know, hands-on care, but that they would have required some form of accommodation, at least, adaptation in order to be involved in their life ways. Now, I'll quickly say that life ways is a very useful catch-all term that we bioarchaeologists use to talk about this grab bag of social, physical, economic environment in which the person lived. So, you know, just imagine that I'm referring to basically every element of life because it is really that social and physical context that is going to determine to a great extent how a person functions when they may have a disability. So in one case, that disability may totally lay them flat because of the services or whatever is available in their community. And another another level, another time, they may be perfectly able to cope with what for them is a minor disability. So when assessing whether the evidence in the bones provides or allows us to infer that they were given care, we have to pay great attention to what sort of life ways they lived in. There are a number of difficulties when we look at the bones and look for evidence of illness. One of the major ones being that only a small proportion of illnesses anyway will ever manifest in bone. Sometimes somebody may have had a bad fracture. That fracture, the bone may have remodeled entirely. There may be no sign of it. But overall, we have enough material to work with that tells us people in the past suffered from severe disease and injury and would have required care. I'm going to now give you a practical example, as you asked. Mumbuck Burial 9 was a young man who died around the age of 24. 25. You can never be absolutely sure with ages and bioarchaeology, but we're certainly over 20 years old. We know that round about the age of 12 to 14, he became uh, at least a partial quadriplegic. He lost all mobility in his lower body and at least partial mobility in his upper body. He probably still had some very limited movement in his arms, in his upper arms. How could you tell that he was a partial quadriplegic from the bone remains? Right. 
This is from the extreme fragility of the bones. So if you imagine the leg bones, for example, his leg bones were no thicker than my thumb. There were no signs of any muscle activity, which we call entheses. So the bones were very smooth, they're very gracile. His arms, I should say, did have some minor um, muscle development markers that we could see in the upper arms. The lower arms were pretty smooth and the arm bones themselves were abnormally fragile. If you imagine your average 24-year-old, 25-year-old in Manbak would have, you know, bones that were sort of as thick as the, the circle of your finger and thumb. Manbak burial 9 was right outside any average standard deviation or standard deviation for normality. The other thing that we could see from his bones immediately was that the vertebrae, which are the bones that make up the spine, the vertebrae from the top of his cervical vertebrae, the neck bones, right down to at least the third thoracic vertebrae, which is the third vertebrae down in the back, were fused together. In people, normally, these vertebrae are single, they're free-moving, well, not free-moving, but they have got that sort of facility for a little bit of movement, mobility. Manbach burial 9, it was like a block of vertebrae. Now, this meant that from childhood onwards, it's a what's called a congenital condition. He was born with this condition. The vertebrae failed to segment from a baby onwards. He would have had a very stiff upper body. He would really have been unable to turn his neck. He would have had to turn his body to look around. Added to this, there was an anomaly in the first two vertebrae and the way that they coordinated with the skull. So in fact, his whole face was slightly tilted up to one side, what's called in technical terms, the torticollis. Now, what we think happened, and this is based on the modern clinical interpretation, is that round about the age of 12 or 13, probably had a minor accident. And this could be anything as, you know, as simple as falling down when he was trying to play a game or tripping over a step or even, sadly, reaching out for something at an awkward angle. That block of vertebrae then moved over free vertebrae and damaged his spinal cord and this led to his paralysis. Mumbak Burial 9 lived in a Neolithic community in northern Vietnam. Although we think it was a sedentary community and part of the reason we think this is that he could not have survived if he'd been moved around on a regular basis that was dependent largely on hunting and gathering, or in this case, fishing. So no technology, it's sort of a tropical come temperate climate. So very hot and steamy in summers, reasonably cool and sort of wet around the winter period. Why do we think that he was cared for? Well, no, let me go first to what he couldn't do. And that's pretty obvious. I think 4,000 years ago, as a quadriplegic, life would be extremely limited. So he would have required people to care for him, to provide him with food, with water, to clean him, make sure that his hygiene needs were looked after, to make sure that he remained hydrated. He would have to be moved anywhere that he wanted to go. He would probably have to be moved. People would have to keep their eye on him to make sure that he was not putting himself in any danger or that the animals, insects, snakes, whatever, weren't posing any threat to him. Quite Mm. a high level of care and constant care. Yep, a very intensive Mm. care and a a care that was very aware, care that was very conscious 
of monitoring his physical needs. Now, one of the major, major hazards in looking after somebody with quadriplegia or for somebody with quadriplegia, anybody in fact who's bedridden, is the getting of bed sores, pressure sores, which of course can prove fatal because you create a wound, that wound just grows, that ulcer doesn't heal, infection spreads to the bone, becomes systemic and the person dies. So what we normally do, and I speak of this from old nursing experience, is when you have somebody who is bedridden, you make sure that they are you know, constantly moved around, that they're rubbed, that they're given massages, that, that pressure points are not allowed to develop. Mount Buck Burial 9 survived, we think, for around about 10 years, give or take, with paraplegia. He must have been looked after very well the fact that we can find no evidence for infection in his bones suggests that he received all this sort of massage, manipulation, constant looking after. And can the evidence just enable you to infer physical care or can it enable you to infer some level of emotional or psychological care? I think certainly the case of Mumbach Burial 9 illustrates this wonderfully. Now in modern, the modern clinical context, I think the second or third major cause of death after somebody becomes paraplegic or quadriplegic is depression, psychological depression, and that can lead to people not cooperating with their care or it can lead to them actually taking their own lives because they feel isolated, they feel desperate. The fact that Mumbach Burial 9 survived for so long in conditions that were physically so very limited and unsophisticated for him, I think suggests that he received a very great deal of support from others, that he was involved, he was kept involved, that he was given a role. It may not have been, obviously was not the typical traditional role of going out there and doing the fishing or gathering the vegetables, but I don't know, maybe it was being a storyteller, maybe it was, how, how can we tell? What we can say is that he was involved as part of that society and accepted as a valuable member. I do think it also reflects upon him to the fact that he was able to be open to that form of affection, compassion, justice, fairness, whatever we want to call it, and that he had his own sort of inner strength that enabled him to cope with what must be a really awful experience because in addition to the physical paralysis, typically people who do become paraplegics also have a range of other extraordinarily uncomfortable and unpleasant conditions that affect them systemically. That's just really fascinating. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Subject ACT on People Powered Radio, 2XXFM 98.3. Listen to us online on 2XXFM.org.au. I'm Sophie Singh and we're in conversation with Dr Lorna Tilley about her study into the bioarchaeology of care. Lorna, you've developed a methodological tool by which someone can assess the evidence that, that they're seeing within those human remains. Can you give us an outline of that methodology? The bioarchaeology of care is the methodology that I developed for identifying the possibility that care was given for then interpreting what that evidence for care might tell us. There are four stages in the bioarchaeology of care. In the first stage, it's very simple. The stages go from the earliest, the easiest, the least contentious. Let's just gather the evidence um, so that we know exactly what it is we're looking at. Let's gather it all in one place, right through to the most contentious, which is let's interpret what this might mean for social behaviour in the time at which we're looking. 
I should say that the bioarchaeology of Kes, sorry, is triggered when we find a set of remains that shows evidence that probably a person survived for a considerable period of time with some form of a disability that was the result of disease or injury. So bioarchaeology of care methodology is triggered. First stage, we gather all the information about the individual and their lifeways. As I said before, their lifeways, every aspect of their environment that we can possibly put our finger on. And that includes things like, what were their burial practices? Did they trade? Because trade, of course, could be a vector for disease or for medicines brought in. All that information, stage one, is really quite a basic descriptive stage. Stage two identifies both the clinical and functional impacts that may have been associated with the pathology that the individual suffered. And the aim of stage two is to say, well, if this person suffered this disease within this lifeways context, would they have required some form of help in the form of care? We use clinical information from modern sources to look at what the clinical impacts of a disease might have been. We then look at what the functional aspects of the disease might have been. And for this, I've borrowed from quite a number of existing health outcomes assessment tools. And if at the end of that, we say, well, help was needed, let's go to stage three, which is seeing if we can develop a model of the care that that person might have needed and might have received in order to have survived. So there could be long-term care and there could be long-term hands-on, very direct and supportive care. Or we could be looking at what I term accommodation, which is where people adapt. So somebody who, for example, like Mumbai Burial 9, who's no longer able to fulfill what would be a traditional role within their community, may be given another role. So they may be allowed, if I put that word in inverted commas, may be allowed to step outside the stereotypic expectations and fulfill another role completely, but still be very much involved in their community. So we have direct support, which of course Mumbach Burial 9 also needed, that intensive nursing, that intensive monitoring of his health condition through to accommodation. Then stage four, which as I said, is, is the sort of most provocative and a number of researchers don't want to go there. But for me, it's the most interesting is to ask that question of what does the fact that somebody received care and it's often in circumstances where that care might be very costly for the community because well, in my case anyway, I, I look at prehistoric populations. What does the fact that care was given tell us about that society, the way that it was organized, the values that they may have had, how they regarded each other, the social relationships, if you like? And I think we can also sometimes, perhaps less frequently, use that information to say, well, what sort of insight does it give us into the person who needed that care anyway in the first place? Now, the index of care is a tool. It's not an answer. I absolutely hasten to say this. It's an online, freely available tool. So if you're curious, it's www.indexofcare.org. And what it does is lead the researcher through those four stages of analysis. In the case studies that you've looked at, have you found any instances where the disability would require the same level of intensive care, but the evidence shows that in one instance, 
care was given to that level of intensity and another instance a lesser level of care was provided. No, and that is impossible to do because I am working in a context in a prehistoric era where we have no information about or around an individual. So two people may have exactly the same disease and they may respond to it in different ways. So maybe one person doesn't need care but the other person does. Or two people may respond with sort of an equal level of gravity. They may both get care but one person dies anyway, regardless of the care that they receive. As I said before, a number of diseases will not manifest themselves in bone. And even where there are signs of illness in bone, a number of diseases have actually got very similar markers. So it's quite difficult to tell which disease you're dealing with. And Obviously, too, in a lot of cases, we don't get the whole skeleton. We don't recover the whole skeleton. There are pieces missing, and it may well be that if disease has affected one particular part, say you've had an infection in bone, that bone structure will have weakened to the extent that it's the part that perishes. It's not preserved. You mentioned that you've recently looked at mummified remains. So that would open up new possibilities for the type of care that you can see or the circumstances? Absolutely. And that's exciting. It is exciting. And just working indeed on a special journal issue that looks at mummy studies and the bioarchaeology of care for precisely this reason, when we can see evidence for disease in soft tissue, as we say, that's been preserved. Now, the soft tissue, that's organs of the body, including the skin, of course, including hair, nails. There's so much evidence, gut contents, that we can get from mummies. If we're lucky, we still have the same problems. I mean, you have mummies, only certain elements may be preserved. Only certain parts of the body may remain mummified. So it's it's not a perfect answer. But there are some fascinating cases. So for example, I've just finished writing an article on a young boy who had tuberculosis and a form of tuberculosis, POTS disease, tuberculosis of the spine, which probably coincidentally with Mumbach Burial 9, would have left him paralyzed for at least a period of time before the end of his life. Now, we could have seen that disease in the spine if only his bones had been left. But we were lucky, I suppose, and I did not do these analyses, that a number of organs showed the whole progress of tuberculosis. So yes, we could tell from the bones that there was tuberculosis of the spine, which resulted in paralysis for a period of time. But from the other work, we can see that that tuberculosis spread to a number of organs, and the cause of his death was in fact a miliary tuberculosis, which is in lay terms really where tuberculosis just takes over the whole body. Very horrible, but very quick. One interesting point too with that, and this makes it a bioarchaeological study in a very important sense, is that this young boy's skin was preserved. So we actually have a whole mummy in this instance, and the fact that his skin was preserved actually held him in a specific burial position within the mummy bundle. He was squatting, his uh, feet tucked back under his knees, squatting on an adobe stool that had been contoured to his body. And that ethnographically is sort of a traditional seat for somebody who is paralyzed, lower body paralysis. And the interesting thing here is that he was not buried in the traditional style, which would have had his knees flexed to his chest and bound up, sort of sitting on his 
his bottom with his, his feet on the ground. He was actually buried in a position in which presumably he had enjoyed while in life. He'd been treated too well in life. So that then gives us an opportunity to say, well, what does that tell us perhaps about the Nazca culture's belief in the afterlife? It gives us an insight that I don't think we've actually been able to get before. I should have said before that this young boy came from the Nazca culture in Peru and lived around 700 AD. That's incredible, Lorna. Mm. That's just amazing. And it must be an incredible experience to handle mm. and have the privilege of being able to work with human remains. Mm. I mean, what does that feel like? I suppose it gives you an appreciation of life in a way and an appreciation of humanity. Absolutely. It's an enormous privilege. And it's something that, you know, I think we must all be conscious of, must all remind ourselves of frequently, those of us who do work with human remains, that this is human life that we are touching with our hands. Lorna, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I really have found it fascinating getting an insight into the world of bioarchaeology of care. So thank you so much for coming in. It's really been a pleasure. Well, it's been my pleasure, Sophie. We could have gone on for another three or four hours. <laughs> I thank agree. You very I agree. Much. Thank you. And that was Dr. Lorna Tilly on the bioarchaeology of care. You've been listening to Subject ACT with me, Sophie Sin. Join us next Tuesday night for more in our Best Of series. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your week.